Okay, ladies and gentlemen, we are going to get underway here in just one more minute. I think we got a few people filtering in from outside. Um, my name is uh, Kevin Dunn. I am the uh, Public Outreach and Events Coordinator here at the Institute of World Politics. For those of you who are new to this school, we are a uh, graduate institution of national security and international affairs dedicated to developing leaders with a sound understanding of international realities and the ethical conduct of statecraft based on knowledge and appreciation of our founding tradition in the United States. Today's event is going to be on the record uh, and connected to that point I want to uh, extend a special uh, thanks and invitation to all our subsequent online viewers as well as the V of A um, uh, representatives here today. Today's uh, lecture is titled uh, Erdogan's New Ottoman Empire. Of course, the uh, speaker will certainly be able to um, fill in the details from there, so I, I certainly don't want a proxy for uh, anything past the title. Uh, I do want to introduce, however, our distinguished uh, alumnus, Mr. Brandon Weikert, who is a former congressional staffer and the founder, uh, founder excuse me, of the Weikert Report. I highly suggest that you check it out online. His book on national security space policy uh, is shortly forthcoming for publication. He holds a Bachelor of Arts in Political Science from DePaul University and is a member of New College at Oxford University. Uh, he has been a contributor for numerous news sources um, and online media, including the Christian Science Monitor, the Dino Report, the BBC World News Update, and the Seth and Chris Show. Without further ado, Ladies and gentlemen, I want to thank you very much for coming out today to the Institute of World Politics. Brennan, sir, as always, it's an absolute pleasure to host you. Thank you. How's everybody doing? Um, today we're going to be talking about Erdogan's potential new empire, Ottoman Empire. Um, this is a little map I just decided to put up there, potentially where he hopes his influence will expand to from modern-day Turkey. Um, the thing about Turkey that everyone has to remember is that Turkey's story begins where the Ottoman Empire's ends uh, ended. At the end of World War I, the Ottoman Empire, which was a predominantly um, Islamic empire, it ruled over the modern Middle East, it was uh, it was a multinational, multi-ethnic polity. Uh, it sided with the Germans, the losing side of the First World War. It had limped on uh, for at least, at least a century as the quote-unquote sick man of Europe. The European powers were basically keeping it from collapsing because they didn't want to have to deal with what happens after it collapsed. But World War I was finally the end of that uh, uh, keeping it together, and ultimately, between the Sykes-Picot Agreement, which between the German, I mean the uh, British and the French, which created the modern borders of the Middle East, and then 1923, the Treaty of Luzon, which created the modern Turkish borders, uh, you saw the rise of a Turkish nationalist, illiberal democracy led by uh, Mustafa Kemal Ataturk, and Ataturk was a mid-level. Um, Ottoman imperial officer, but he wasn't exactly an orthodox Ottoman figure. He, he looked at the West and said, why were the Western powers besting the Ottomans? And he believed it was because of modernity, and he associated secularism, a form of democracy, um, with 
modernity, and he did not think the Ottomans possessed it anymore, and ultimately he believed that that lack of modernity led to the collapse of the Ottoman Empire. So he basically sought to replicate, to copy and paste, to use modern parlance, um, a modern democratic government onto Turkey. And uh, it, former Secretary of State Dean Acheson described it as an imperfect democracy. Um, I think Lord Patrick Kinross, who was one of his biographers, put it best when he said that Ataturk undertook to secure a profoundly liberal end using extremely illiberal means. He was rabidly secular. He oppressed Islam, oppressed all other ethnic minorities, subordinated them to the Turkish narrative, um, uh, particularly the Kurds. They were not allowed to wear their traditional dress, speak the language. It was a it was, it was a very tough time uh, for, to be, uh, and, and, yet, and yet though Ataturk was trying uh, to, to get what he perceived to be Turkey on the right path. Um, this is the modern borders of Turkey. You'll see that it, it, it encompasses, for all you classical historians, it encompasses a territory used to be, used to be known as Anatolia. It borders Europe, it borders the Middle East, and it borders uh, the Caucasus states as well. It uh, sits on the Black Sea. It's a geostrategically vital state in the world. Under Ataturk and his successors, Ataturk ruled the country for 15 years. He passed on and left the country in the hands of basically a, a military junta. Uh, it was a succession of former military officers who led it uh, until the 2002. Uh, when Ataturk led the country, because he was wedded to this secular vision of governance, he became an integral player in NATO. He comprised NATO's southern front. He was uh, very much committed to preventing Soviet communism from expanding uh, into the Middle East, at least en masse. And um, he was fairly, they were fairly successful at, at that. They were a critical member of the NATO alliance, absolutely critical. And they remain so, at least on paper today. Um, these are some questions that have dogged Turkish uh, politics since the 1920s. What is the role of Islam in politics? What is the role of ethnicity in the nation? What is the role of the state in the economy? And how will history influence Turkey's future? These are the kind of key questions that have continued to dominate uh, Turkey's politics today. Um, Ataturk was, for all intents and purposes, a revolutionary figure in that he was trying to transplant a very alien concept of Western-style governance onto a uh, culturally not a Western country, So it was, which explains why he was so violent at times and forceful, and his successors were as well, because they were basically trying to force-feed their form of democracy to the people there. In 2002, however, after decades of uh, Kamalist rule, the secular Kamalists were basically corrupt. The government was bloated. It was not responsive to the people. Obviously, because of its oppression, it was highly unpopular with many people, which led to the rise of the Justice and Development Party in 2002. It took power. AKP was a coalition party. It was uh, bottoms up. It was a, gra it was a grassroots uh, movement. And it was modernist Islamists, liberal reformers, and elements of other center-right parties. It aligned also with the Sufi uh, Islam movement of the Gulenist movement, led by uh, Fatullah Gulen. And uh, the Sufis are interesting in that 
they're considered heretics by both the major sides of Islam, Shiites and Sunnis, and they uh, practice a form of mystical Islam. Uh, they, they pride themselves, particularly in the context of the Gulenist movement, they pride themselves on, on being uh, morally upright. They really bought into the idea of anti-corruption campaigns. It explains why they were so heavily involved with uh, trying to, to get members of this movement into the justice uh, department. Or, uh, of Turkey into their police, national police services. Uh, they really wanted to go after the corruption. Um, almost immediately, Turkey sought entrance into the EU uh, when the AKP took over. It's interesting because the AKP was a um, more counter-revolutionary movement if, if Ataturk was revolutionary trying to impart a very... Um, Western form of governance onto a country that was not initially Western. Uh, Erdogan, Recep Erdogan, who was the prime minister under the AKP initially, was trying to basically undo a lot of that. Um, in 2003, Erdogan, to his credit, attempted to basically settle a long-standing dispute with Cyprus. Uh, Turkey had invaded Cyprus and uh, at one point had up to 40,000 troops on a part of Cyprus, and it was a contested issue between Greece, the Cypriots, and Turkey. lasted for decades. In 2003, he tried to resolve it, and a group of Cypriot nationalists, Greek nationalists, scuttled it. Interestingly enough, the Cy Cyprus ended up getting accepted into the EU before Turkey did, and that complicated Turkey's accession into the EU. Um, it basically, Turkey's it should have been a cut and dry case, at least on paper, that Turkey would have gone into the European Union, but because of Cyprus, because of uh, French and German antipathy toward Turkish admission into the EU on various grounds, basically Turkey is no longer, they're, they're still technically uh, eligible for t uh, EU membership, but I think it's a mutual parting of ways between the two groups. Um, one thing in particular that became very noticeable in 2007 was the divide between Turkey and Europe. Uh, by that point, Erdogan had begun instituting very Islamic reforms, allowing for uh, public displays of Islam, which had been very seriously uh, curbed under the Kemalist regime. He started allowing anything from allowing the headscarves again in public, to banning the sale of alcohol in, in many AKP-controlled regions. Um, it was not implementation of Sharia law, but it was definitely very different from what had happened the, the previous decades under the Kemalist rule. Uh, this also was happening as, for instance, France was banning the headscarf and taking a more uh, stern approach to its relations with Islamic uh, minorities in France. and th this created a, a bit of a kerfuffle between Turkey and France when the EU High Commission on Human Rights upheld the 2007 French ban on headscarves. That kind of was the breaking point when the Turks at that point said we're no longer really seriously pursuing, actively pursuing membership. And that sent the, the Turkey slowly down this um, alternate path to Western integration, or at least full-on Western integration. At its core, the Turkish foreign policy is dominated by answering the Kurdish question. In the southern part of the country exists a very large minority of Kurds. And the Kurds under the Kemalist regime were very much oppressed, as I noted earlier. But also, 
under Erdogan's regime and AKP, they've also been very much repressed. Uh, the Kurds since the 70s have, in Turkey, sought their independence because they no longer believe that, they no longer believe that there was a, a proper role for them in Turkish society since Turkey had been so seriously opposed to allowing any expression of Kurdish culture to uh, be, be made in public. They formed the worker, Kurdistan Workers' Party, the PKK, which basically was a, it was, it was a Marxist-Leninist separatist movement. And at that time during the Cold War, that was not the thing to do because it allowed for the Turkish government to brand them as, as terrorists. And to be fair, the PKK did engage in acts of terror. Um, it also allowed or disallowed the PKK from getting Western support because in the context of the Cold War, any Marxist-Leninist movement was not one that the U.S. or its allies were apt to support. Uh, the important thing about the Kurds is that they don't just exist in southern Turkey. They exist in Syria, uh, Iraq, Iran, Armenia, and they are the largest stateless group of people in the world. Uh, they are also very, for the most part, pro-Western, and they have been a very key ally of ours in the fight against ISIS, and then the Iraqi Kurds were also a key ally of ours in the fight against Saddam, both in Desert Storm and in 2003. Uh, this is uh, uh, Abdullah Akalan. He is the leader of uh, the PKK. He has been imprisoned since about 1984. He, like, like Napoleon, he's kept in an island prison. Um, I think it's very interesting. Uh, and he, um, the Turkish chant in Kur I mean, the Kurdish chant in Turkey is, uh, w "Without a leader, w we cannot survive without our leader," which is uh, Akalan. The question of whether or not they're a terrorist organization or if they're freedom fighters, they're both. Uh, they've committed acts of terror for 30 years. Recently, they've really veered away from it and gone the political route. Uh, in 2013, again to his credit, the uh, Erdogan government uh, uh, did make an armistice agreement with PKK. Uh, but by 2015, Erdogan abandoned this agreement and uh, the violence resumed the antipathy resumed, and it was all about the fact that the concern among Erdogan and his ministers was that they didn't want Kurdistan to be formed, an independent Kurdistan to be formed, because the, the fear would, it would be cleaved out of southern Turkey, which of course would mean a reduction in Turkish territorial integrity, which is not good if you're trying to rebuild the Ottoman Empire. Um, I thought it was interesting that uh, on the 23rd of this month, the head of the DIA testified to some colleagues of mine on the Hill. I put it up here, that basically he thinks that Kurdish independence, at least in northern Iraq, is not a question of if, but when. Uh, we keep talking about fighting ISIS, and we need to. We are not asking our, ourselves what happens after ISIS falls, and it will. Um, the Kurds, I believe, are going to declare independence, at least in Iraqi Kurdistan. At that point, that's going to, I believe, have a rippling effect for the region, and it is going to encourage both the Kurds in northern Syria and the Kurds in Turkey to begin agitating more seriously for some form of independence away from their um, home states of Syria and Turkey, respectively. This is going to have a serious negative implication for, at least as our foreign policy stands now, uh, we rely on Turkey to keep the southern front of NATO. But how reliable they are because of the Kurdish question is has become an issue. Uh, we we needed Turkey to help fight night to help fight ISIS. 
they've spent their time fighting mostly the Kurdish elements that are fighting ISIS also, um, because they're so worried about inspiring the separatist element within their population. Within their population, in, in, in between 2013 and 2015, when the armistice did occur, and this is another reason why Erdogan cracked down, uh, the HDP was formed, which was a political party, mostly Kurdish, under the leader of Selahattin uh, Demirtis, and I'm sorry if I'm butchering the pronunciation, but he was a very, very interesting young figure in, in uh, Turkish politics, and he realized that the Kurds need to get a political front going. They can't just rely on the PKK because the PKK has a very checkered history. And he was also very smart to realize that I need to create a coalition party. And so he, as as Turkey went more Islamic in its politi political uh, Islamization of polit politics, the PKK, uh, the um, sorry HDP started building a coalition between the liberals in Turkey, between the, uh, the homosexual community, many of the oppressed people in Turkey who are uh, being marginalized by the ruling uh, AKP party. And he was having, HDP had a huge success rate, which is one of the reasons why by 2015, Erdogan, who was not wanting to have to share power with another rival uh, party. There has not been another rival party in Turkey since 2002. It's been almost exclusively the AKP. Uh, Erdogan, that's one of the reasons why he cracked down on them. In Syria, we are relying heavily on the Syrian Democratic Forces, the YPG, in our fight to retake Raqqa, which is the um, capital of the Islamic State. Uh, part of that fight means we have to arm and equip and assist the, the YPG. Turkey, last week, the Pentagon announced that they would begin doing this in earnest in the buildup to the push to get ISIS out of Raqqa. The problem is the Turks are have been very resistant because Turkish intelligence believes that the YPG is basically a front organization or closely aligned with the PKK in Turkey. And this is where the fear of losing Turkish sovereignty comes into question because if the YPG is tightly linked with the PKK, the worry is that with advanced American weapons and with this new urge, this new taste of liberty, the Erdogan government is fearful that the YPG will not give up those arms after they take back Raqqa and that basically they're going to pivot and try to get the PKK and help the PKK in Turkey in getting a, a full-on separatist movement going using the Iraqi Kurdish, Kurdistan example as kind of a motivator, saying, hey, they're free in neighboring Iraq uh, in the north. We want to replicate that, and we want to create a contiguous Kurdish state. Um, and that is part of the reason for Erdogan's very tough crackdown. Another reason was the quote-unquote judicial coup attempt in 2008 Basically, the last vestiges of the Kemalists in the judiciary of Turkey uh, launched an anti-corruption campaign against Erdogan and the AKP party. Uh, of course, Erdogan says that it was a judicial coup. There is some evidence, as we've seen recently, to suggest that Erdogan and his party are actually quite corrupt. And, uh, but there's, there's no doubt that there was an element of trying to use the judiciary to remove Erdogan and his party from power. Erdogan turned to his Gulenist allies and, the, and together the two of them basically uh, took down the last remaining vestiges of the, the Kemalist 
influence in the judiciary. The Gullenists then replaced many of those, those Kemalists in the judiciary and national police forces. Um, and also this removal of secular opposition created a significant imbalance in the Turkish political system that allowed for, that set the stage rather for recent developments in Turkey's politics. Um, this has been an ongoing question. Is Turkey, is Turkey being ruled by a, a, a president or is he being ruled by a sultan? Um, and I, I, I've heard this quote years ago and it, it, it just, democracy is like a streetcar. You ride it until you arrive at your destination and then you step off. That was what Erdogan said in 1996 when he was the mayor of uh, Istanbul. And I think it's kind of a great snapshot of how where Erdogan envisions his kind of final power state being, which is absolute power, which is more of a sultan. Um, and this gets us now into the definition of neo-Ottomanism. At its basic element, neo-Ottomanism is simply Turkey reestablishing Turkish in influence and control over the former Ottoman space. But you cannot um, divorce the uh, political Islamist element to this whole calculation. Uh, it is, as I said, a counter-revolutionary force in Turkish society, so therefore, it, if, if uh, Ataturk and his successors were secular, pro-Western, illiberal Democrats, uh, by nature, the neo-Ottomanist push is going to do the opposite. It's going to, it, it's going to be an illiberal democracy, but more on the Putin model, and uh, more on a... Um, not necessarily Western friendly uh, track. The, and forgive me, but the, the former Turkish Prime Minister Ahmed uh, Duvalu, Duvalu, I can never say this, I'm so sorry, I can never say his last name properly, I always get yelled at, but I think that this quote from 2010, he's no longer the Prime Minister as of last year, I think that his quote from 2010, this is right before the Arab Spring, was also very telling because he was Erdogan's right hand man for many years. Um, his quote that Turkey is a Muslim superpower that will have zero problems with neighbors, this mindset that because the former Ottoman space was ruled by a predominantly Sunni Muslim Turkish empire, the solution for peace in the Middle East is to allow for that kind of empire to return. It, 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 is, it has infected the entire ruling party of Turkey and I personally think that it is a grave uh, mistaken belief because there are other parties in the Middle East who are not going to allow for Turks to basically rehabilitate the Ottoman sphere. And as we've seen, um, shortly after the statement, the Arab Spring happened, and all that they've had in Turkey is troubles with their borders. So it's kind of this, it, it, was, a, it was a very bad gamble on the part of the uh, um, Erdogan regime. In keeping with the neo-Ottomanist push, Erdogan has been rebuilding lost symbols. Um, I was reading an article about a year or two ago of a meeting between Palestinian leader uh, Mahmoud Abbas and Erdogan, and I swear when I saw this picture from afar, I thought it was a pop-up ad, and I realized it was real, and I investigated what, what this was. That is, those are the old Ottoman guard from old imperial times in, in, in Turkey, and the significance is that each one of those guards represents the 16 original states that comprise the original Ottoman Empire. There's little doubt, or at least there should be, that Erdogan is desperate, not unlike what Putin is doing in Russia with rehabilitating the Cossack military schools, 
Erdogan is desperate to reconnect his rule with the past as a form of justifying the illiberal extremes that he's taken to increasing and maintaining his power. Um, as I noted earlier, you can't divorce Islam and neo-Ottomanism, at least political Islam. I, I, you know, I, I don't want to paint with a broad, too broad a brush here, um, but because Erdogan sees the neo-Ottomanist ideology as being closely tethered to Islam, he has decided to turn around and support Islamist movements as well as jihadist networks in Libya, uh, in Syria. Al-Nusra was his primary client against Assad. Basically, Erdogan made a strategic calculation in the region that the future lies with those Islamist elements that have been kind of taking the lead anymore in the Arab Spring, some are calling, I think Bill Crystal referred to it as the Islamist winter. Um, but basically, that, that he's taking a, a, a strategic gamble, saying that if I support these groups first, they will, when they eventually knock out these secular Democrats, or secular autocrats, rather, uh, that they will swear fealty to me the way, the way that former leaders in the Middle East were paid homage to the Ottoman sultans of, of yesteryear. Again, I don't know if that's exactly accurate given ethnic divisions and the fact that I don't think uh, Erdogan has the political juice to maintain um, that kind of uh, power sphere. Um, again, this is this quote keeping in, in touch with how Erdogan since 2010 has really embraced this kind of political Islamic foreign policy. Uh, the real question that I have when analyzing Erdogan, how serious is he about being as an Islamist? You know, is he really, does he really think he's you know, Mullah Omar, or the next Saladin, or the next Sultan, or is he using Islam as a convenient tool for justifying his power grab at home? Uh, you know, the question is whether or not he's, um, you know, he's, uh, he's the next Sultan, or is he just Frank Underwood from House of Cards, a Turkish version of that? Um, and, and you look at the level of corruption that has kind of become endemic within the uh, Erdogan ruling class and uh, ruling party. And, you know, they had the, the, the gold for oil scandal in which Erdogan was, in his government, in order to boost their economy and to avoid political fallout, were selling, they were giving gold to the Iranians as a means to allow for the Iran to circumvent Western sanctions at that point. And in exchange, it boosted their uh, exports up by a billion dollars a year, which was just what the doctor ordered to help goose the Turkish economy along and uh, avoid some kind of political backlash. It was during this period, though, that Erdogan's former allies in the Gulen movement, they were populating the judiciary, the judicial, uh, excuse me, the judiciary and much of the national police, they began launching anti-corruption campaigns. Again, this was, I think, out of a, a very, they were deeply pious to Sufi Islam, to Sufism, and they, they really believed very fervently in this anti-corruption campaign. And they went after Erdogan, and they started back then going after Erdogan, his allies, as a means of unseating them because they didn't think that they were uh, responsible actors any longer. Um, in key, again, keeping with rehabilitating the image of uh, the former Ottoman Empire, 
Erdogan built a 500 billion euro um, palace uh, for himself. It is, I think, four or five times the size of the white. I mean, it, it is a monstrosity. And uh, he, he really is trying to give the image that he is the sultan, that he is the strong man, that he is going to lead Turkey to this new age of rehabilitating the empire and reasserting uh, uh, Turkish power. And this, in, as he justified it, because this, this became quite a contentious issue in Turkish politics. There, Many people were, in keeping with the anti-corruption movement, many people were saying, look at how he's misusing the public funds. His justification was, I need it. And uh, you know it's it's uh, it's good for it's good for Turkey because it gives the image that we are back, and um, I mean I personally think it's architecturally not anything to look at, but nobody asked me. Um, but he really does think that he is this strong man, Sultan Neo Sultan that's going to bring peace to the Middle East and empower he and his political cronies. Um, the reason I focus so heavily on the Gulenists is because last summer, this was kind of the last, the last straw between the Kurdish separatist movements in the south uh, and now the Gulenist movement. Uh, Erdogan suffered a coup. The former allies, uh, led by Fatullah Gulen, and by the way, Fatullah Gulen lives in the Poconos in the US. He actually fled a few years back and made serious inroads with um, both political parties in the U.S. and uh, he, he, he was seeking support from America to, to support his move to try to unseat Erdogan. But in summer of 2016, it was a quixotic uh, coup attempt to unseat Erdogan. It failed miserably. It allowed for Erdogan to really crack down and it set the stage for what happened a few months ago in Turkey whereby um, Erdogan basically uh, overthrew the parliamentarian system and it established a quasi-unitary executive uh, system with himself as president, inching his way ever so closer to absolute power. Uh, and this, it all stems from the fact that he had enemies that were trying to destroy him. That was, you know, his justification. Um, now, I spoke with a Turkish former Turkish intelligence agent back in October of 2016 in McLean, and he, he was convinced, now he had fled the country. He was convinced, though, that there was um, undue Russian influence here. Uh, the 16 hours before the coup began, Alexander Dugan, who has been dubbed by Foreign Affairs as Putin's brain, was um, in the country. Uh, he gave a joint press conference with uh, one of Erdogan's uh, ministers. It was, I don't really know why he was in the country, and he left right before the coup, as the coup actually went underway. Uh, he claims he was there just to give a lecture because he's an academic in Russia. I don't know. He tends to pop up right as things get hot. He was in Georgia right before the 2008 invasion. He was in Ukraine right before 2014 annexation. And what this former intelligence, Turkish intelligence officer told me is that he was convinced that this was a kind of a false flag deal. I don't know. I don't have any proof one way or the other. But I, I did think it was interesting that Erdogan and Turkish intelligence always knew that this coup attempt was going to happen and that it did not have the juice to kind of you know, actually accomplish what it wanted to do, which was overthrow Erdogan. Um, but they let it happen anyway, and the Russians were 
according to him, in, involved by propping up Erdogan and assisting him covertly uh, as a means to solidify Erdogan's power. I don't know if that's true, but this was coming from a Turk, former Turkish intelligence officer, and I thought it was interesting enough to bring up. Uh, it certainly gives new perspective, especially considering um, considering the fact that Turkey is aligning ever so closer with Russia. Now, we've spoken about the Kurdish separatists driving Erdogan. We've spoken about Erdogan's natural urge to do a uh, political Islamic counter-revolution. Uh, we've spoken about uh, corruption and his urge to rehabilitate the Ottoman Empire. The entire time I researched this, I'm going, well, is this a case of the tail wagging the dog, though? Because really, we see that Erdogan, for all this control he has, there's still these people popping up trying to overthrow him. For all this control that he has, we still see um, the ceaseless flows of refugees coming in through Turkey's border with, with Syria. They can't stop it. They, they occasionally close the border but they can't stop it. So my, I wonder, and the fact that he's aligned with so many Islamist and jihadist movements in the Middle East, I just wonder if he's taking the path of least resistance politically. His end goal is to increase Turkish influence, increase his power, and so he's just kind of aligning with what he thinks is the stronger horse in the region, which is this, this move to, to Islamism or jihadism, whatever you want to call it. And uh, As I mentioned earlier, the real question is, I think he might be closer to a... Uh, Turkish Frank Underwood. And this gets us to the great realignment that's going on within the region. Um, Turkey being the kind of uh, main power for NATO's southern front, the fact that they are getting so cozy with Russia is greatly worrying. Uh, interoperability between Turkish forces and other NATO member uh, forces, particularly in air defense technology, uh, is at risk right now because Turkey wants to start switching out their NATO systems for the Russian-made S-400, um, which will complicate our ability to keep an interoperable uh, def uh, NATO-wide defense system, air defense system. Um, also, this the the previous uh, gold for oil scandal uh, created a kind of back to back channel between Turkey and Iran. And they have maintained this. And Iran being a client state of Russia, uh, there is this new alliance forming in the region between Russia, Turkey, and Iran over Syria, over a, a whole host of issues, over US influence in the region. Uh, and it's, this is a serious problem. This is a serious problem for US foreign policy. Uh, they, Turkey is still a member of NATO, but how committed they are is another question, especially when they know that we are close with the Kurds. And again, for Turkey, the number one foreign policy concern, more than even reestablishing the Ottoman Empire, is maintaining the Kurds as part of their uh, territory because they want that, that land. Uh, I wrote at my website, thewikertreport.com, back in December about the great pipeline wars that are shaping up. And this is kind of... This is kind of a big deal for the U.S., or rather the Turkish position on Syria. As I mentioned earlier, Turkey was very much opposed to uh, uh, 
the secular autocrats of the Arab world. He opposed Gaddafi. He wanted to unseat Assad. That's why he was supporting al-Nusra. It's why he's been nominally supporting ISIS. Well, elements of his government have been giving money, been giving some arms. He's been bombing Kurds uh, instead of ISIS. So he's been giving some nominal support to ISIS as well. Back in 2013, Qatar wanted to build a pipeline that connected Mideast natural resources, uh, oil and gas, with Europe. This was a direct threat to Russia because Russia knows that Western Europe in particular completely relies on uh, Russian natural gas, oil, and other resources. And it's almost an exclusive deal. In fact, it allows Russia a huge amount of leverage in times of crisis. For instance, during 2008's uh, uh, South Ossetia War when they invaded Georgia, before the Bush administration, George W. Bush administration could actually get a response together, Putin called the Sarkozy and Merkel up in France and Germany and said, hey, look, before America gets involved and responds, uh, it's getting kind of cold in Europe, and you need our, our natural resources, and if you don't help us get a better deal and cut the Americans out, um, we're going to cut off your, your supplies of natural gas and oil, or we're going to charge you a lot more. And so, of course, Sarkozy rode in on his white horse and ended that conflict in Russia's favor. Uh, we now have a rump state of Georgia existing today and South Obsidian, and Abkhazian, very com complicated. And again, it happened again in, in Ukraine in 2014, similar. He was using natural gas and oil and other resources as a strategic lever to pull against the Europeans in order to prevent American power from being fully brought to bear. Uh, this proposed pipeline would have complicated that ability. It was Qatar, Saudi Arabia, Jordan, uh, it would have gone through Syria, and, Tur and Turkey would have been the end point. Uh, when the Obama administration opted not to intervene in Syria in 2011, that killed the deal. Because the Sunni world knew, the Arab kingdoms knew, that uh, the, the Gulf kingdoms knew that they were not going to be able to build this pipeline so long as the civil war was tearing apart Syria because they needed to cut it through Syria and they couldn't in such an unstable environment. Aha! Iran, though, comes in and says, well, we'll, alter, we'll offer an, alter, an alternate pipeline. We'll exclude Turkey and the uh, Sunni kingdoms because they're allied with America. And we'll, we will, it'll be Russia, it'll be um, through Iran, uh, from Iraq through Iran, and it'll get the Mideast natural gas and energy sources to Europe and it'll benefit, it'll be us and Russia that'll benefit from this, which means Russian, the Russian position is held, upheld. Um, very quickly, Erdogan realized that with America not intervening, we, they, that the Qatari pipeline was dead, but he still wanted to benefit because again, Turkish economy needs the, the transit fees. So he, in 2015, November of 2015, when the Russians were intervening in Syria militarily, he shot down a Russian fighter jet. Uh, everybody assumed it was because natural Turkish-Russian antipathy. It was not. I believe it was because he was sending a signal to Russia saying, hey, buddy, the Americans may be out, but we're not going anywhere, and we want in on this deal. And, of course, now what we find is that Russia has cut uh, Turkey into this deal, and now it is a Russian, Iranian, Turkish, uh, a, a Syrian alliance that's trying to uh, come up with a peace deal to end the Syrian civil war um, without America and the West's involvement. What's our solution to this? Uh, we've, we, when this, this is really it. The big, three big ones is we're going to need to figure out how to help resolve the Syrian civil war. Uh, I, I realize that 
we are not going, we should not want to intervene the way we did Iraq or Afghanistan. That should not be what we want to do. Um, but we should be signaling to the Alawite ruling party in Syria, we will make a deal with you, uh, but Assad has to go. But we understand that the Alawites are worried if Assad goes, that means they're going to get massacred by the majority Sunnis. We, we can figure out a way, and that's obviously the, not, not the purpose of this talk, so I'm not going to spend too much time on it. We will find a way, though, to help bring stability, and we're going to have to work with the Russians and the Turks and the Iranians because they're there. We, we, unless we're going to go to war with them, we, we're going to have to figure out a way to increase our, our holding in the region and then use for a position of strength a negotiated settlement. More importantly, we've got to defeat ISIS. has to be defeated. Uh, as long as they're around, we're going to have, continue to have problems. Uh, what's, what's dividing the Middle East is a Sunni-Shiite Cold War, Civil War, whatever you want to call it. Uh, we've got to figure out a way to mitigate that. And then we're going to have to accept the fact that the Kurds are likely not going to accept being subordinated any longer to either Iran, Iraq, Syria, or um, Turkey, or even Armenia, maybe. Um, and so we might have to move back toward what former Lieutenant Colonel Ralph Peters suggested in 2006, which was to start trying to remake the map of the Middle East to comport closer with ethno-religious realities. The thing is about the Middle East, real quickly, before 2003, America was able to maintain a, a relative amount of stability because we relied on a, a balance of power scenario. After 2003, the removal of Saddam Hussein's Iraq, that balance of power was destroyed and allowed for an Iranian breakout of their containment that we had had them in since the 79 revolution. This then created uh, a militant reaction on the part of the majority Sunni kingdoms, and it's allowed for Russia's interference. It's, it's created all kinds of, of problems. The most recent trip, I wrote an article at American Greatness, which is a new publication, um, about the Trump administration with its recent um, trip to the Middle East seems to be angling for some kind of revitalization of the balance of power that existed in the 90s. Uh, they're trying to create, it looks like, some kind of Sunni coalition that may involve Israel. But we're never going to be able to replicate that because of the Turkish problem. The problem is with Turkish um, ambitions on the part of Erdogan and also Kurdish separatism. So what I think we're going to probably need to do is look something more like this, whereby we allow or we, we support Kurdish independence which will then allow us to cre recreate a northern front for this new balance of power agreement. Uh, it, we, we, uh, we then also push back Turkey, which will then prevent any kind of um, uh, interference from Turkey. Uh, it will prevent it from being a serious problem. It will have implications for NATO. But as I argued in my last talk here, we're going to need to uh, rewrite some of the things for NATO in terms of creating an Eastern European defense zone and a Nordic defense zone to keep Russia back. We're not going to be able to rely on Turkey as much, I don't believe. Uh, so this could be a, a potential solution. And um, I think that might, that might be it. Um, there, there, was a, um, there was a quote. Yeah. Uh, this quote, there was a, this, is the, this is the last bit I'll say. Turkey, because of Erdogan uh, and his push hard toward Islamism, he is dividing the electorate. Even though a majority of people in Turkey are, you know, they are, they are Islamic, they're not necessarily in favor of very harsh 
uh, Islamic rule or uh, in, you know even an, an Islamic state per se that Erdogan's trying to create or a strongman government. Um, there's just enough to give Erdogan a majority, but it's a very slim majority. You have a lot of the Kurdish element. You have a lot of liberals. You had a, it's it's a mixed bag over there. So. I think that Eric Edelman's most recent piece in the Weekly Standard, I think actually was probably one of the best pieces I've read recently on the future of Turkey. And for those who can't see it, I'll just read it. He said at the end of his article, Erdogan campaigned for a strengthened presidency on the grounds that he alone could provide stability for the country, racked by terror attacks, post-coup jitters, and the blowback of Syrian conflict. Instead, he has thrown into relief the deep divisions of a society riven by ethnic, confessional, and cultural differences. If he pushes too hard and too fast to implement his post-Kamalist uh, vision in the months ahead, he may simply succeed in bringing the country to the brink of civil war, and that would make what is happening next door in Syria seem like a Sunday picnic in the park. This is probably, I think, going to be closer to reality as time goes on over the next five to seven years um, than any other alternative. I disbelieve Erdogan is going to be able to fulfill his ambition. Uh, I think he's alienated way too many people in Turkey. I think he's created way too many enemies. I think by pushing NATO and the West away, he may have gotten some short-term benefits with his new alliance with Russia, but that is not a natural alliance. It goes against every historical fact of the region, and I am very skeptical that this new alliance will have any long-term staying power, uh, particularly as the centrifugal forces of Russia continue to play in domestic politics in Russia, and as we work with the Arabs and Israelis to put Iran back in its box. Um, and here's my contact info as well. Oops, I'll, um, I'll leave it up for you guys. Um, I run a website, The Weicker Report. I also write for a new publication, American Greatness. It is a domestic political, it is, it is partisan, it's conservative, uh, so I, I'm a Republican. Um, but that that is it, full disclosure, and that is it. So uh, I'm open to Q&As if anybody's got any. Yeah. Thank you. Excellent. Mm -hmm. No, the attack. Yeah. I think I think they thought they were back home for a little bit. Yeah. 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 Well, I think doing what I talked about and allowing for Kurdish independence to occur, at least in some limited capacity, I think it will seriously complicate uh, Turkey's ability to, or, or willingness to be more aggressive. Even that, even though it was a minor incident, it, 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 it symbolizes what's going on in Turkey today. So you want to throw out the ambassador. Unfortunately, we need Turkey right now. Uh, they are still part of NATO. Uh, we can't, we, you know, we can't wash our hands of Turkey entirely. So, okay, you want to throw out the embat? I, I honestly think that uh, there's nothing we can do about that because of geopolitical issues going on. And Erdogan has—he's a very sensitive guy, and he, you know, we we need him right now. And so pushing him too far, something like that could actually set him off. 
and send him running really close to the Russians. So in the near term, I don't lodge a you know, formal protest, um, revoke the diplomatic immunity maybe of some of those people. But uh, that to me is small chickens. I, I, I really think that, that even, even talking about something like this from official people in the US will put Turkey on notice and might start making them a little bit more uh, pliable or conducive to U.S. interests in the region, which is to end ISIS, you know, roll back Iran, and try to create a modicum of balance of power to create stability in the region. So I, I'm more focused on the geopolitical. I don't really know in terms of that, something like that. I would, I would lodge a formal protest or maybe have our Marines in, in, in the, uh, in, I'm just kidding, no, re re replicate it when, when the president visits them. No, I'm just, that's, that's a joke. Um, but um, no, I, 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 there's nothing really we can do about that. This though, will put them on notice. So, yeah. Yeah, I'm an alumnus, nice to meet you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Sure. The Putin model? Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so your first question, uh, he's certainly looking at Putin as a model. Um, it's a different context, though, in, in Turkey. You, you have a very large, you, the Kurdish, the reason I spent so much time on, on the Kurd, Kurdish question is because they are probably one of the most uh, powerful elements in Turkish politics. They're able to really threaten the stability of the Turkish regime, the Erdogan regime, I think far more than any other group in Russia is able to do to Putin. The Kurds are very well organized. They are incensed about how the Turkish military has been bombing their, their brethren in the Syrian civil war. So he's certainly, you're right, he's certainly, I mean, that's why I mentioned Putin is because he's certainly looking at the Putin model saying, I want to replicate that. But, you know, it's kind of like, I always liken it to kind of a facsimile. The more, the more copies you make of a copy, it starts to degrade. And I just don't know how sustainable of a model that is. And also we have to remember that Erdogan, my sense is that, I don't know, I just think that he's, he doesn't have as firm a grasp on power as he wants people to believe or as Putin does in Russia. And that's just my kind of intuition studying it, that a lot of this kind of big, you know, big, big palace and big this, I think it's because it, 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 it it illustrates a deep onset insecurity. And you look at the Gulenist mo movement, that was a 
that was a nothing burger. But it was able to, even though it may have been a kind of exaggerated thing, it was able to seriously bring into question Erdogan's ability to govern the country. And furthermore, um, in 2011, when the Obama administration chose not to intervene in Syria, Obama basically told the Turks, uh, it's on you, tag, you're it, figure it out. And Turkey, for all of this incredible power Erdogan wants you to believe he has, Turkey's only solution was, well, I can't do anything about it, so I'm just gonna, can't beat him, join him. I'm gonna support him. I'm gonna, I'm gonna you know, lend dialectical credence to what the Islamists are saying. And so I think that's a symbol, which is why I kept questioning, is he more like Frank Underwood, where he's just kind of playing this part and kind of just doing whatever he has to stay in power? Um, I, I think there's a deep weakness there, um, much more so even than Russia, uh, Putin and Russia. That's just my take. And then your second question was the replication of the Turkish model in North Africa. Um, you mean in terms of, uh, how do you mean? Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yes. That's the critical thing. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And also the ethnic division between Arab and, and Turkish. Yeah. Um, I would say, look, if you're looking more for a, a better model, I would not say the Turkish model, uh, the Erdogan model. Uh, I would say the Muslim Brotherhood model would be much because they are overtly Sharia law uh, for, the, for that part of the world. Uh, I think that's one of the reasons why, I mean, you look at, you look at, Erdogan's vision of creating an Ottoman Empire doesn't have many takers in the Arab world. Sure, they'll take money, they'll take support, you know, because they need it in terms of the Islamist parties especially. But you look at the history of, of the Ottoman Empire, no matter how similar they were in terms of religion, Arabs looked at the Turks and said, you are a Turk and I am an Arab and vice versa. And so... I don't think the Erdogan, I think that's part of the reason why I'm skeptical of his dream of building an Ottoman Empire. I, I, I don't think the Erdogan model is able to be replicated over the Arab world the way that maybe it, it once was, you know, in the old Ottoman Empire. And of course you have to remember, Turkey today is nothing like the sultanate that existed in uh, Ottoman times. It doesn't have that kind of staying power. It doesn't have that kind of moral authority. Um, it just doesn't. Uh, so I hope I, I answered your question. Uh, yes, sir. Yeah, the Peters map. Yeah, that one. Yeah. I've met the international community. The uh, you know. And so what you're, well, well, we're always going to have the nation state as a model because it's the Westphalian system. So, sure. Which is why I talked about, well, not me, not just me, there's other people that uh, have talked about splitting the region along ethno-religious lines. 
Um, you know, the, the Kurdish call for independence is not unreasonable, particularly how they've suffered in all of the countries that they're currently a part of. Um, so that to me, you know, uh, creating a Sunni state for Iraq is not unreasonable. I know that there are economic concerns. Uh, you know, creating an Arab Shia state is not unreasonable. Give people uh, self-determination, uh, you might have a better shot of some kind of mitigation of some of these conflicts, some of the suffering, some of the, the misery. So in terms of uh, getting away from the nation state model in terms of it having the mixed polities, I think, yeah, in this region in particular, that might be a, a healthy idea to go along tribal or ethno-religious lines. Um, plus that allows, that really allows, I think, for us to do some balance of power politicking in the region. Uh, you know, let, let, let the Sunnis stay together and let the Shiites stay together, let the Kurds be together, let the, let the Israelis be together. And I, I mean, maybe it's, maybe it's simple, uh, but that's kind of where my thought process was for the long term. Because you're not gonna stop a lot of these, these movements for separatism. And so the worst place would be to be on the wrong end of that. Um, and so, and what we're seeing throughout the world, and this is my website, WeikertReport.com, it, it was founded last year as a means of analyzing the kind of nationalist, populist waves that are washing across the world today. And so what I, what I look at is I go, there is, and I don't want to oversimplify, but there is kind of this, this movement away from big blocks, big political blocks, among particularly people in regions like the Middle East, in the developing world, where you know, they don't necessarily want to be part of an Iranian hegemony. They don't necessarily want to be a part of the uh, Ottoman Empire. They, they want to have their plot of land, and they want to, you know, run it according to, they, to their desires, which is, I think, a totally reasonable, you know, stance. Of course, I'm an academic, but... Well, it, he's not our bastard. Um, <laughs> so, uh, that, that, yeah, it's gotten me far so far. So, I'm going to stick with it. Uh, no, he's, and I don't work for the government anymore, so I can say whatever I want now. Um, but, uh, yeah, no, he, he's not our bastard anymore. Erdogan has stopped being our guy. And what I'm looking at is saying, we can't bomb people into democracy. We tried that, it didn't work. We can't back away and let the region burn. We tried that the last eight years, it made things worse. So maybe something that does this, that disseminates or allows for power to be disseminated away from you know, these far off centers of power that may not share ideological or cultural values uh, with the people being governed and, and try to, you know, get some of this going. Um, it might actually mitigate our penchant to support autocrats. In the near term, though, unfortunately, I would say we're going to have to keep, at least for the next decade, um, backing... We don't have a choice. We don't have a choice. I mean, because the alternative is uh, Islamist groups that are very well organized. I mean, the one thing I will say about the Arab Spring and the Obama administration's handling, which for the record, I 
thought was a disaster of the Obama administration's handling of it. Um, but the one thing I will say is that it illustrated what happens when you do let the pieces fall, as they may, as many have argued in the US. Look at Egypt, one of our stalwart allies. And I know Mubarak was not a good, I, get, I know that. I'm not making a moral case for him. What I'm saying, though, is in this coldest sense of American strategic interests, he did our bidding very well. And to be fair, uh, there was a bit more of a moderation in Egypt under Mubarak and now under Sisi than there ever was under the few years the Muslim Brotherhood was running it. But look what happened. We had, it wasn't that the Muslim Brotherhood was in Egypt, it was that they were the best organized. So that when the day came for votes, they were able to sweep. There were, I, I mean, I, I know for a fact, there were many liberal Democrats in Egypt especially that were dying to have a say in the future of their country, but they weren't organized, they didn't have the resources. The Muslim Brotherhood has been around since what? The, but the 20s, 30s, I mean, they have, been, they have been doing this for decades. So when you, the, when, if, if, I wish I could say let's abandon autocrats. I really do. I get it. Unfortunately, the alternative for American interests, and I think for human interests, is that we, get, we go from having autocracy, a secular autocracy, to uh, religious totalitarianism, which is, you know, I think Nixon said that he preferred a, a right-wing autocrat to a left-wing totalitarian any day, but of course it's Richard Nixon, so. But uh, I think there might be some truth to that. Anyway, so I hope that answered. Uh, yes, ma'am. Hi. Sure. Mm -hmm. Yes. Mm -hmm. Right. What kind of I'm sorry, what kind of Syria? So yeah, so basically and I've written pieces on this as well. Uh, the, basically what I'm thinking is in, in a perfect world we can fulfill the moral obligation of getting rid of Assad, but we make a deal with the Alawites who are the ruling class in Syria. They're, the mi they're a minority of a minority. They are Shiite, they're a sect of Shi Shiite Islam, but they are a minority within that. Um, we make a deal with them saying, look, give us Assad, but we will help you come to a more equitable solution in the region where you will still retain power on a federal level, but maybe we can start disaggregating some of that power to some of the more Sunni and you know, non-Alawite regions. Because remember, the Alawites did not want to be a part of Syria initially. Assad's grandfather actually was a leader of the Alawites, and he, in fact, did not want the Alawite section of Syria to be incorporated into the larger Syrian when, it was being, when Syria was being created after World War I. So maybe there's some hope that we can influence things along that, that, that line. Of course. I, you, know, you know, I don't, I don't know um, in terms of what will happen. I suspect since the Russians and Iranians are so well entrenched and we're only willing to go so far, understandably, that it's probably going to be something closer to what Russia and Iran wants and something farther away from what we would like to see happen. Uh, to your first question, um, which was, I'm, far, I'm forgetting your first question. Well, yeah, so for the Syrian solution, that's the best thing I can think of right now. And I realize it's a work in progress, but I'm, this is, I'm, this is all I can think of is try to keep the Alawites where they're placated and protected, but also 
give some of the power to some of the other groups in, in Syria, but also, uh, so basically a Cantonist approach, a, cant a, cant a cantonal approach to Syria. But in terms of the, uh, the Kurdish coalition, we need the Kurds. Like that, they're the ones on the ground, they're the ones doing the heavy lifting. We have, since the 1990s, in Iraqi Kurdistan, we have been promising independence, some form of it, and we gave it to them uh, when we created the enclave strategy in the 90s. We, uh, you know, we, we gave them a proto or quasi-state in the 90s with Operation Comfort and Hope, I believe, or Hope Comfort, I can't remember, but it, Jay Gardner was the, the, the CEO of that operation, and it basically created modern Kurdistan in, Iraq, in northern Iraq. There's kind of been a momentum, whether we want to acknowledge it or not, bipartisan for the last 25, 30 years, that this is what we're working toward, is an independent Kurdistan. And again, strategically speaking, to defeat ISIS, which is the number one goal, it must be, in the region, we have to support the Kurds on the ground, because they're the ones who are there doing the heavy lifting. And so basically, Turkey's they're out of luck because they're not, they've not worked with us so far. They've been trying to hedge their bets. I understand why, um, but sorry. Like, there's no perfect solutions here. So we're going to have to deal with, which is why I think this is actually a good idea, because it will push, it'll limit um, Turkey's ability to really influence the region the way that they've had a, a, a ability to, by pushing their borders back, by putting them on their heels a bit. Um, just the mere talk of this, and it needs to come from an official in the U.S. government, just the mere talk of this, though, might be enough to get Turkey on board. Look what happened last week when we announced that we were arming uh, arming the, the YPG. Ultimately, I, I don't know what was said between Erdogan and President Trump, but ultimately Erdogan uh, acquiesced a bit. Now, he's still griping about it, but he's, he's letting it happen, the arming of the YPG for the final push into Raqqa. So there is some wiggle room, just the mere pressure from the US, which since 2011 has not been on Turkey, which is why they're kind of frittering around looking for another you know, strong partner in the region, which right now is Russia and Iran. Um, so hopefully, maybe, we can stabilize it on the cheap. This is a longer term thing that is a little bit more expensive, both geopolitically and actual economically, but this might be what we have to do. But the status quo ante cannot reign any longer. So, yes, sir. Oh, nice to meet you, sir. Hmm. Sure. Yeah. Right. Yeah, you're right. Right, right. That's why we had a civil war. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, that cuts to the cult of personality. That cuts to the fact that I think the most recent um, ex political experience for many Turks was the alternative of the Kamalist rule, which to them is not acceptable. And so it's kind of a binary choice. It's a false choice, to use the words of our former president. Um, it's a false choice. I think, I think there are a lot more options the Turkish people could be taking. I don't think there are, 
I don't, I don't know, honestly. I, I, I don't know. Because if, if I were in Turkey, I'd be saying, I actually don't think the Kurds are exactly wrong because they actually, from 2013 to 2015, tried to do the right thing, follow the rules, create an opposition party, and build a coalition and do the, 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 the democratic thing. Of course, that was ultimately pushed back. Um, so I, I don't know. But there, to be fair, though, there are a lot of Turks who are not in favor it's just they're not a majority. But it's, it's a slim majority that Erdogan has. And the farther he goes down this neo-Ottomanist rabbit hole, the more alienation a lot of Turkish voters are experiencing, which is why you're seeing a lot of this. And your first question, I'm, I'm sorry. Yeah, well, toward that, yeah. So, um, you know, the problem now is uh, we, we, I know there was uh, January, I think, the administration was floating the concept of doing a uh, kind of a repeat of what we did for the Kurds in Iraq, which is creating a no-fly zone. Uh, that was shot down metaphorically uh, because of Russian air defense platforms now being active, the S-400, in the region. Um, I think now that Russia has bought in to the Syrian conflict, and the Iranians have as well, I think it's time for America to put the onus on them and say, look, you claim Russia, you're the father of Orthodox Christianity, you claim that you're the last defender of Western civilization, he's not, uh, but he's telling everybody he is. Okay, fine, then we want to create an enclave for the Christians in Syria, you're not letting us, why not? And start putting the pressure on them in the diplom international diplomacy. And I do believe that Russia will ultimately cave because they don't want to be seen as um, something akin to the Soviet empire. Uh, you know, so. No, no, but there, there, you can create an enclave. You can, there are, basically the distribution in Turkey, there, there are areas where there are majority Christians that you can start moving the other Christians, you know, get them to go toward, say, and protect them, obviously. Uh, but the real, the real impediment to doing anything to save them uh, before it was because the Obama administration just didn't want to get involved. Uh, now it's because the Russians are there, and the Russians are saying no American beyond what they're doing. No, they're really resisting us, um, which is unfortunate for the Christians and the people. Uh, yes, ma'am. <laughs> that is my hope, if it were to happen. Because in my view, if we're doing this balance of power scenario that I think the administration is trying to do with the Gulf kingdoms, there is a very quiet alliance forming between Israel and Saudi Arabia. And if, again, I am with the DIA chief. I think that it's a question of if, I mean, of when, not if, for Kurdish independence. So if we're going to go along those logical lines, I think the logical end result is to say, look, um, Turkey's no longer reliable as a southern partner in NATO or as a northern point for the Middle East balance of power agreement that they're talking about. Free Kurdistan could. They are pro-Western, they are democratic. For the most part, they are. They have a pretty well-trained military that just needs some training and funding. Uh, they are a contiguous region. Look at the map. I mean, that's the, that is roughly the area they would encompass. Um, so they actually could end up being much more beneficial to the US in terms of creating this new balance of power paradigm in the region. Um, and so my hope is that, yeah, naturally they would have to align with Israel and the Sunni states uh, to block Iran and also to uh, 
check uh, maybe some of the more Islamist urges of Turkey. Um, basically, the whole point is I think Turkey has acted irresponsibly. irresponsibly. They are no longer trustworthy under Erdogan. Erdogan has made it so he's not going anywhere anytime soon. So we need to act decisively to ensure that the region doesn't suffer because of, you know, tin pot dictator in, in a giant palace. Um, and uh, so I think, I hope that answers your question. Sorry, I forgot what I was going to say. I was going to say something else, but I, uh, yeah. yeah thanks for the great Thank you so much. And my question is, how resistant Russians would be to creation of the state of Kurdistan? Because yeah. that would mean that would be compelled to order yeah. uh, for now Russia has 5,000 troops mm -hmm. in I know, which is why I'm also supporting it. Is to, yeah, I'm sorry, keep going. I didn't mean. To. Yeah, so my question <laughs> They're going to be resistant, but I don't know how to say this. For all again, for all the talk about Russian military, um, yeah, this is the most advanced Russia's been militarily since the Cold War, but. That isn't saying much. And yes, their nuclear arms are a problem and their cyber warfare capabilities are a threat. Um, but their ability to project power is only because Iran has been allowing predominantly um, the Russians to use Iranian air bases in Syria. I know Russia has two bases in Syria, I know that. But, but really, the, the, the logistical bridge is made because of Iran. They're relying on country like Iran, which will be contained. I'm convinced that we are going to contain Iran again, one way or the other. Um, so in terms of the Kurds, yeah, Russia's going to gripe, and it might be nasty, particularly along the border you know, with Armenia. But, And this is not going to happen overnight, by the way, either. We're starting, we're talking about <laughs> northern Iraq first, but in my head, once that starts as a domino effect, it's going to start in Syria, it's going to go up to Turkey. And so in my view, this is kind of like over the next, you know, years, but that's where it's going to, I think, roughly end. As time goes on, time is not on Russia's side. They will not be able to continue doing these military endeavors. In fact, most analysts were completely surprised that they've been able to maintain the far-reaching operations. In fact, remember, I think it was in December or January, they reduced their role initially in Syria as trying to bring stability to create a peace deal to, in Syria that didn't work out. So Russia's position in the region is not as great as they think. They're going to hoot and howl about it. I, I don't know how strong their reaction. It could, though. You're right. And this is the danger of partitions. This is the danger of, I, I don't pretend, but all I know is that looking at the trends going on in the region, the status quo will not hold. It would be nice if U.S. policymakers would stop reacting to events and start anticipating them. So I, I hope that answers it. Yes, sir. Sure, yeah. Well, um, that is an excellent question because obviously they do not enjoy when we create new states because of the Taiwanese issue. Um, I honestly think that China can be bought for now. Look at what's going on with North Korea. Um, North Korea 
is for all intents and purposes China's little brother. And for the cost of some oil and natural gas deals, the administration, the Trump administration has managed to at least get China to step back from some of its vociferous support. So I think if you, and, and Eric wrote a great article at my website about the new Silk Road. Um, China is very much wedded to globalization um, at a time when many aren't. And I think that if the Trump administration can offer some carrots, say, you know, I don't, I don't know what it would be, but in the region, um, they might be less inclined. Because at the end of the day, all they want is the resources. They don't care how they get it. Um, yeah, they don't want to empower America. They don't want to see America. But if you look at this plan, this is actually not empowering America. This is allowing America to reasonably step off a little bit and yet know that there will be at least a modicum of hope for stability in the region, which benefits everyone, particularly the Chinese, because of the creation of the new Silk Road. They need stability in these regions to have the kind of trade that they're ultimately praying for or hoping for. So I think that I think the Chinese can be bought for now, basically. But who knows? You know? So I, I don't know if that helps you out with that. So am I. I mean, I'm not blind to it, but again, <laughs> we're, I, I like to think of it as, um, I guess you're, you're, you're surfing, you know, on the wave. You're, you're not driving the boat. You're surfing. Um, the whole point is to stay ahead of the wave. We have not been ahead of the wave. So if we, that we're talking about this, and I hope that eventually actual people in the government start addressing this. And it sounds like the DIA finally, people, you know, the DIA is starting to address it, um, and Congress as well. Um, my hope is that we can start riding the crest of the wave. Um, it's not going to be pretty. It's not going to be perfect. But again, that is better policy making, in my view, than reacting. Because reacting does include, nowadays, the threat of nuclear terrorism. Everything's smaller now. Everything's more dangerous now. The margin for error is that tiny. And so, and there's many more players involved than it was during the Cold War. So, you know, disconcerting on that level. Yes, sir. Yeah. So in January, um, some headway was made, actually. Um, there was a, con there was a, a conference, uh, the BBC reported on this. Um, nothing was resolved, of course. <laughs> Tends to be how it goes. But they did make some headway. Um, which is a big move, considering how long that conflict has been. Um, I think you're seeing a slow realization among all parties that the status quo in that condition will not stay. And Erdogan, to be fair to Erdogan, we saw it, however temporary with the Kurds, we saw it in 2003 initially over Cyprus. Erdogan is open to trying to resolve some of these longstanding, and I think that speaks, by the way, to the, the we, actual, his actual weakness at home. He's really worried about overstretching his limited uh, geopolitical capital. Um, so I think that we are, it's years down the road still, but I do think we are having some forward momentum, some. but. You know, it's open-ended, and the, the, obviously because it's the Greeks involved, and it's Turkey, and you know, this is, this is an ethnic and historical thing, so it's, it's not going to happen overnight. But I do think there was some in January, um, uh, some, some headway, more so than 
I mean, before almost in 2003, they almost had a deal. I mean, it's not like it's impossible. They almost kind of had a modified charts, though. You don't really, you don't really aggressive to me. It's like the smallest dot on the map. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. Well, that's why I brought it up in the beginning. I mean, but, but that to me is not, that to me is, that if anything speaks more to the ability of NATO's southern front to maintain unity more than it speaks to the larger issue of uh, handling the, the Kurdish question of, 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 of where Erdogan is trying to take Turkey and where Turkey ends up going. So, but I, 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 that's why I brought it up though, is because it, no, I know it is. Oh, I know, I know, but, Sure. I mean, yeah, it's, it, it, is, it was not the focus of my talk here, but you're right. It is. No, you're right. And I, that's why I brought it up. Um, but there are bigger fish to fry, I think, in terms of our perspective, in terms of worrying about what the Russians are doing, uh, worrying about European unity, uh, such as it is. Um, so, yeah, no, you're right, though. So, but, but they, again, they, they, they have made headway in just talking about coming up with a solution, which is more than what happened over the last, what, 30, 40 years. So, uh, baby steps. Uh, but it is a lever he is going to play. You're right. There's, there's, no, but there's no getting around that, though. And that's why I think that the more you, you know, you might, have be, you might be able to push them back, the more on their heels they're gonna be diplomatically and the more pliant they will be to acting reasonably uh, within the US-led world order, so. Thank you. Any other questions? Okay, well, thank you guys for giving me your time. It's been a pleasure.